0: Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.
1: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision,
2: dental and more. Learn more at uh1.com.
3: the british empire sir john seeley famously opined at the end of the victorian period was acquired in a fit of absence of mind It's become a very popular way of summing up the way in which the British Empire came together, but lots of historians have disputed it. And among those historians is the noted chronicler of Victorian battles, high life and depravity, Sir Harry Flashman. George MacDonald Fraser's great anti-hero in Flashman and the Mountain of Light, novel published in 1990, scoffs at Seeley's judgment. Presence of mind, if you like, he says, and countless other things, such as greed and Christianity, decency and villainy, policy and lunacy, deep design and blind chance, pride and trade, blunder and curiosity, passion, ignorance, chivalry and expediency, honest pursuit of right, and determination to keep the bloody frogs out. <laughs> Dominic, <laughs> um, who, who do you side with, Seely uh, or... Um... So, Harry Flashman.
0: Oh, the flat. I mean, you've always got to, I think we should all start all our podcasts with Flashman. I mean, the good, you know, it's going to be a good podcast. You also know that nothing anybody says will be as, as good again in the, in the next 45 minutes. But, um, I'm a Flashman man on this. So clearly, I mean, the great thing about that quote, we talked about Flashman in the, um, historical fiction episode. And the great thing about Flashman, the the account of the, of the 19th century and the British Empire is that it's actually, there's layer upon layer of ambiguity and irony and nuance. And there absolutely is all that in that quotation, isn't there? Because so much is packed in. And I think there's so much complexity there that actually reflects the the imperial experience. Greed, missionary spirit, you know, keeping the frogs out, valour, decency, villainy, corruption. All those things are there. And that's what makes this story, you know, so rich, but also so controversial that you can actually see in it, as the Flashman quotation suggests, you can see in it whatever you like. And so that is essentially attitude contemporary attitudes to the British Empire. I mean, it's an absolutely
3: live issue. And I got that quote from um, a book that's not only a survey of that, but has become a a vital contribution to the entire debate. Um, Satnam Sanghera's Empire Land, which came out, um, I think, at the the beginning of this year. And we are hugely honoured to have the author with us on the podcast. Um, and before I, but before I introduce him fully probably, I should just mention Jeet Baines, who was the matchmaker over this. He introduced us on Twitter. Um, I mean, we all followed each other, but he kind of suggested that, that someone come on and talk about it. So thank you very much, G. And above all, thank you, Zed, for coming on and talking to us.
2: Pleasure. I'm a, a fan of the podcast. I'm hoping we can all get cancelled as a result of this conversation.
0: <laughs> well, I think Dominic's the likeliest to get
2: cancelled. I, I think, I, I, I th- think, th- I think I've
3: probably it. been cancelled already.
0: I've, I'm, I've been cancelled so many times. I've got the scars. <laughs> <laughs> um, but,
3: but, so I, I, on the topic of Flashman to begin with, um, we talked about him. We had an episode on historical fiction. And I said that I thought that I, I was surprised that Flashman hadn't been cancelled, to be honest. Because, mm. you know, I mean, his, the voice is that of a, a very racist Victorian adventurer. And I wonder what your perspective on that. I mean, do you find Flashman funny? Do you find him
2: convincing as a historical voice? Um, you know, what? I mainly think of David Cameron because <laughs> people always compare the two, don't they? And so I now cannot read Flashman without thinking David Cameron's reading it. And actually, I was reading Our Island Story yesterday, which David Cameron picked as his favourite children's book of all time. And I couldn't believe, I mean, it's, it's one of the most famous history books of all time, isn't it? I just couldn't believe how it barely touched upon empire. And when it did, it was talking about the black hole of Calcutta, the mutiny, the Indians behaving terribly after the mutiny if that's your view of empire and then you become prime minister you're going to be in trouble man so let's let's cut to the
3: chase because um i had exp- when i was kind of pre previewing uh, that you were coming on the podcast i and i was reading your book and i quoted um from the book and it gave me a sense of what obviously you've been living through for ever since it came out essentially which is that you've become the focus for the kind of the rival Perspectives on this that that you've become lauded by. So you've got quotes from you've got a quote from James O'Brien on the front, for instance. But you, you've also had, I mean, you've had a firestorm of abuse and often
2: incredibly racist abuse over this, haven't you? Yeah, actually, so on both sides. I gotta say, some right wingers have also liked it. Chris Patton, Andrew Moore. Um Yeah, it's been a shit show, basically. Can I say a shit show on the podcast? Yeah, absolutely. They'll put a little <laughs> e, and that means that. that Anyone under yeah. 15 won't Well, people will just fine. assume
0: with the E that Tom's <laughs> talking about genital mutilation
2: again. So. <laughs> well, I'm sure we'll get yeah, on don't worry that at about some it. point. Well, a lot of left wingers, the socialist worker reviewed it last week and said it wasn't angry enough. And so I get lot out from left wing. And I've had I've had a lot of abuse. People saying, if I hate Britain so much, why don't I get back to where I came from? Are you Wolverhampton? <laughs> um, and loads of racist abuse, which I didn't really consider significant because it's par for the course nowadays. If you're a journalist. But then The Guardian wrote a story and I interviewed William who's who's been writing similar stuff to me for many more decades. And William said in his 20 or 30 years of being a historian of colonial India, he hadn't got one message of the kind I get, not one. And that made me realize it's about my color. You know, when you're talking about empire, you're talking about race. You're talking about white people conquering brown people generally. And the thing is, until now, the imperial story has been told mainly by white men. And so suddenly, when you get brown people like David Yolusoga and me, to a much more minor degree, coming up and saying, oh, you know, empire wasn't quite like you think it was, it triggers a certain kind of person who can't see past your color, and it becomes this toxic conversation about race, and there's no escaping it. But the interesting thing about that, though, Sanam, um, is that,
0: I mean, your book absolutely isn't a diatribe, is it? I mean, Tom and I were talking about this before the show, about, the, you know, you always give... You know, you take us into the historiographical debate. So, you know, was it acquired in an absence of mind or wasn't it? Did it contribute to Britain's economy or was it even a drain on Britain's economy? And often you you end up saying, you know, that, that there isn't an easy answer to a lot of these things. And in fact, at the beginning, I'm really struck that right at the beginning, I mean, right at the outset, you say you don't believe in doing moral audits. Of yeah, empires and yeah. it's obviously incredibly simplistic to say I mean we talked about this in our episode about global empires it's very simplistic to talk about any huge amorphous historical phenomenon and say all good all bad or any of those kinds of things so did you so so you sort of it's no wonder i guess that you think you think that the abuse is directed at you personally rather than at, at the book basically
2: yeah, it's really great to hear that from you guys because you guys are mega brains. And that a Flashman quote is the only way to approach Empire because it was bloody complex. We're talking about 500 years of history. Lots of things happened across the quarter of the planet. The idea that you're going to give it a five-star review, like a podcast, you know what I mean? It's insane, but that is the only way the British really see Empire. I mean, Tom asked people to suggest questions for this podcast. I had a look at them just now. I'd say 75% of them. Were about whether British empire was good or bad. That is, I blame Niall Ferguson. You know, we've had this obsession with this, in this country about talking about whether empire is good or bad, and now it's been seized upon by conservative ministers. You know, we, we're not allowed to, you know, do down British history, and it's such a silly way of looking at complex history. I mean, what does that mean if when you say you're proud of imperial history? What does that mean? You're proud of slavery? You're proud of abolition?
0: But I suppose it goes the other way, doesn't it? I mean, it's equally ludicrous to say that you feel crippled with a sense of guilt or or you feel ashamed. So I suppose it it cuts both ways,
2: right? Totally. And so Jeremy Corbyn was saying a few years ago, we need to teach the crimes of empire. I've got no time for that. Then Michael Gove was saying, we need to teach the glories of empire. I've got no time for that. The only way to teach this stuff is by nuance and not to make it a balance sheet thing. But it's really hard to get away from that. I bet you will end up talking about that. <laughs> I end up talking about it sometimes too. I, I, I'm sure we will. Um, but, but one way to, to frame it, which um,
3: I was kind of reflecting on, um, is that the argument over whether we should celebrate or feel ashamed of empire, which is obviously incredibly current at the moment, is it's nothing new. And in fact, it's a theme that has run throughout the entire span of British imperialism. And we've got a question from Mistress Gilbert Esquire, who I think teaches, at, teaches yeah. at Colston School that just got renamed in Bristol. So is, you know, incredibly alert mm. to all these issues. Um, and she says, so this is going right to the, back to the beginnings of, of, British, I guess, English imperialism. She says, I've just taught the Tempest to year eight. What was the Jacobean attitude to empire? It seems it's okay to mock and demean the indigenous peoples, Prospero with Caliban. So I would say about the Tempest that actually it's incredibly ambivalent that um, Prospero is a complex figure and our attitudes to him vary. Uh, There are times where we feel great sympathy, I think, for Caliban. Um, certainly feel sympathy for Ariel, the, the, these figures from the the island that Prospero has essentially enslaved. Um, that sense of ambivalence is there
2: right from the beginning, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's, it's as much of a British tradition to moan about British Empire as it is to celebrate it. The figures throughout history who, who attacked Empire, I mean, go from George Orwell to Robert Graves, Saki, Gladstone, who ironically, you know, had a lot of his family wealth from slavery. Um, we forget, actually, Colston's a good example. The guy who put up that Colston statue struggled to raise the money because not many people wanted that statue. Clive, Robert Clive, wildly unpopular in his lifetime, dragged in front of Parliament. Samuel Johnson saying, you know, he slashed his throat because he was overwhelmed by his own crimes. But then, you know, a 100 years later, his statue's being put up in Whitehall. And the Viceroy of India is is saying, you know what, this is needlessly provocative. But then now you have people celebrating it. And so, yeah, it's complex, isn't it? And these narratives change. But that anti-imperial narrative is as British as anything else, I'd say.
0: So an interesting, there's an interesting tension though here, right? Because at the end of your, I mean, one of the things in your book is you say, we should try and get to a kind of national consensus about the history of the empire. But in a way, the lesson of your book and indeed of all the history of of Britain's engagement with empire is that there never has been a consensus. And you could argue, I mean, one of the things about any national story is that there never will be. I mean, by definition, the past, because it's political, is always going to be divisive. So do you think Mm -hmm. there's an element that, you know, that, the idea of a sort of everybody joining hands and saying, hurrah, we've united around a, a, a sort of a consensual account of our imperial past. I mean, to me, at least, that seems unlikely,
2: shall we say. Yeah, our no, history is argument. And so there's always going to be argument, there needs to be argument. We need to learn how to argue about this stuff in a more civilised way. Having said that, there are facts. And so lately, in the last few weeks, we've had a certain person writing in a mainstream press questioning the Tasmanian genocide about whether it happened and why it happened. And you know what, in all the, I think I've read nine or 10 different accounts of that, even from people like Jan Morris, who are very nostalgic about empire, none of them deny it as a fact, but suddenly it's been questioned. And I think there are such things as facts. And I do think there's something, there is fake history now in the way there was fake news. And because we know so little, the public debate is very thin. So on the, on
3: the topic of say of, the Tasmanians, uh, that essentially, I mean, it, it, a genocide that, that inspired, actually inspired, you know, it's, it's, it's name checked at the beginning of HG Wells war yeah, of the war worlds, of the worlds, kind of mm. one of the, the great anti-imperial novels, because essentially the war of the worlds is a visitation on London of what the, the British have visited on other parts of the world. And he specifically the, the, the Tasmanians, um, there's a sense in which um what what really makes um the exercise of, of British imperial power increasingly toxic in the second half of the nineteenth century, I think, is what you were talking about earlier, which is the the transformation of race into something supposedly scientifically based. And I guess that every great imperial people have tended to assume that they're the best, because essentially, if you don't think you're best, you're not going to have the self-confidence to go out and conquer people. Uh, and I can think of the Greeks, the Romans, the Arabs, I mean, everybody, you know, in their imperial heyday, they say, we're the best. What, what, what's peculiarly toxic about the British manifestation of that, it seems to me, is that a kind of cod Darwinism provides supposedly a scientific rationale for it. And even though that, um, I mean, basically, you know, the whole basis of that gets incinerated by, um, by the Nazis and it becomes a taboo subject. But your sense, and, and speaking as someone who is, is obviously kind of in the eye of this particular storm, your sense is that that has left a leg- an enduring legacy, even though it, it is not taught. Very, very few people would stand up and say, yes, I'm a scientific racist. But the legacy of that endures.
2: Absolutely, yeah. I would say, I mean, it endures in the, our racial violence. I mean, when black people were being attacked in London in the 1950s, the British Empire was still doing terrible things with the Mau Mau at the same time in Kenya. And the attitudes were the same towards black people in London as they, as they were in Imperial Kenya. And uh, you see it, in, I would say, in the colour bar that ran through, you know, late empire and through British society in the 60s and 70s and 80s. I mean, working men's clubs in Wolverhampton had a colour bar until 1984, you know. Even now, I'd say there's certain pubs you go to if you're white or brown in Wolverhampton and certain pubs you don't go to. And uh, I think there's a very powerful legacy. The reason we have institutional racism in this country is that we had the institution of empire, which was, in the 19th century, racist. But I'm proud of it. But we've got to remember that race as a concept didn't exist between the 13th and 16th centuries. It's quite a modern idea, right? And also you've got this bizarre, as these scientific theories emerged in the 19th century, you have this bizarre Aaron theory, did you know about this, that encompassed Indians and Sikhs. It's part of the reason why we Sikhs were regarded as, a, you know, a martial race and kind of almost good brownies, Um but it's quite a lot to get my head around that, and you know Hitler is still quite popular in India, in India, partly because of this Aryan race theory. So, well, I i mean, on on that that, but but that's also the other side, I guess,
3: of say the British engagement with specifically India, is that the discovery of Indo-European languages is kind of bred of a fascination on the part of many of the British officials who who are in India with the civilization around them, so. If there's a sense of, of superior cultural superiority and increasingly racial superiority, bewilderingly it's interfused with a sense of, of of fascination and kind of almost inferiority, because these officials who are studying Sanskrit are blown away by its beauties, by its power. You know, they're saying that the masterpieces of Sanskrit literature are greater than those of, of, of Greek and Latin. So that is part of what makes it so difficult, isn't it? Yeah. To get a handle on the empire, that the same people who are perfectly capable of shocking racism are equally capable of saying, you know, w- w- we were painted savages in the woods while the people in India were creating these
2: great masterpieces. No, absolutely. And the same thing happened with the attitude towards the ra- racial mixing in like inter- interracial relationships. They were more or less encouraged during a certain phase of the East India Company history. You know, I think the East India Company would pay for weddings between British people and India, Indian wise. But then the Victorians come along and it becomes possible for, you know, white women to travel to India and suddenly it's a taboo. You'll lose your job if you have a mixed race relationship. And that's the same empire just over a few decades.
0: Sam, I wanted to ask you about, um, you mentioned being a Sikh. And I thought that was one of the most interesting parts of your book. You talk about, um, the experience of, of writing as a Sikh, I mean, not, you're not, you know, people sort of use the word Indian very vaguely, but the, the experience of specifically being a Sikh. And as you said, of Sikhs being seen as martial and as inverted commas, good Indians. And, and how, and you are, you're quite interesting about how much that was constructed that kind of, because some historians think that's, this is an identity that's completely constructed and sort of foisted onto Sikhs by the British. But you, you seem to think that that's not quite the whole story,
2: is that right? It's not quite the whole story because there was, we had our own martial theory you know, history. The 10th Guru turned the Sikhs into a martial kind of creed. They had to because they're being persecuted and created an identity. But we were fading in numbers, you know, around the time of the Indian mutiny. You know, the Sikhs were at risk of being merged into the Hindu mass, you know. And it was the British, when we took the side, when the Sikhs took the side of the British during the mutiny, decided that we were trustworthy and therefore fetishized us. Even published books explaining why we had exactly the right physique for being fighters, as, I, as I'm sure you can tell from me. <laughs> and We had the right size noses, <laughs> the right shoulders. And it, yeah, it blew my mind that not only the way we see ourselves, the Sikhs, was created by, Brit- was not created, but accelerated by British Empire. But arguably, they saved us as a community because it became so popular to become, you know, a Sikh martial race employee of the British Empire, that the numbers increased massively in the decades afterwards. And even Hindus joining the Indian army were encouraged to do the Sikh kind of religious ceremonies.
0: In order to sort of prove their martial valor. I yeah. Suppose. So yeah. can I jump in and ask you a quick follow up to that? I am fascinated. Um you talk a lot in the book and 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 you've got a very funny line that I think I've quoted in one of my own books actually um about taxi drivers asking you where you're from and you say I'm I'm from Wolverhampton <laughs> and you know people saying go back home and you say well I'm from, actually from Wolverhampton you know do you want me to jump on a train from Euston or whatever. Um when you're talking about the Sikhs in India you used the word we to mean the Sikhs and they was the British. So do you f- did you find yourself kind of when you're writing the book and when you're thinking about these kind of issues do you find yourself consciously or unconsciously slipping between kind of subjectivities, if you know what I mean.
2: To be honest, it's entirely unconscious. Um, loads of people have commented on the fact that I keep saying we when I talk about being British, about the British Empire, I say we. And apparently, an historian, I because I'm not a historian, I send the book out to five different historians before publication, and, and they all said you can't say we. It's the number one rule thing you get told as an undergraduate. Stop saying we. It's not you. But I wanted to say we because that's the way I feel. And I wanted it to be an inclusive thing and not accusatory because so much of this conversation is about cancelling people and demonising the other side. And, you know, as a Sikh, I don't feel that way. I feel as implicated in empire as probably you you and Tom. Because I, I reckon that the, the there is a kind of strange,
3: or maybe it's not strange, but I mean, a, a really telling ambivalence in the relationship of the British to the Sikhs. In, in the 19th century, because um, there seems to be a kind of certain measure of guilt on the part of, of British officials and generals over the, over the conquest of the Sikh Empire. Um, so, so Napier, who, who, who leads the, the campaign, I mean, he says it's a rascally business. Um, and there's, it was, I think it's Elphinstone, who was governor of Bombay, says that, because uh, this, this is just after the Afghan war, you know the disaster of the afghan war which provides the theme of the first flashman novel um complete disaster and then the british go in and conquer sind and he kind of says that it's like a, you know a street bully who's been beaten up who goes in and beats up his wife <laughs> and, and 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 that's you know that that's the kind those are the kind of sentiments that um would you know you you, you might expect to hear it from a uh, a woke academic at Churchill College today um, mm. but coming from the very British officials who did it and then once they've conquered it they're modelling a lot of their imperial approaches on, on that of the Sikhs so the the idea of using the Khyber Pass as a kind of gateway I mean that's it was the Sikhs who began that
2: I think it's and th- it will go
3: back to the fact that the, the Sikhs almost beat the British and we, yes completely it was absolutely yeah. in the balance um, and I, I, so so there's a, I, Again, the more you look at it, the more complicated it comes to seem.
2: Yeah, and I should say, actually, when necessary, the British did murder the Sikhs in large numbers and brutally sometimes tied to the ends of cannon. You know, there's a particular Sikh sect who were blown to smithereens. And the point of that punishment of being tied to the end of a cannon is that you can't have conventional funeral rites, you know, because your body's parts are scattered across a large area. So complex. And you talk in the book, you talk in your book about
3: the, 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 obviously, I mean, this has devastating effect on the person who gets blown out of a cannon, but also rather strikingly, you talk about the effect it may have had on the people who actually fired them. Totally. imagine Because it's very hard to square a conviction that you're maybe a good Christian or uh, bringing civilization with the impact of doing that.
2: Yeah. And there were women and children in the audience, in the crowd sometimes, you know, watching people being blown to smithereens. I mean... That's got to be psychologically disturbing. It's Paul Gilroy who talks about that, about the effect of colonization upon the colonizers. And actually George Orwell, of course, in that great essay about where he has to shoot an elephant. It's called Mm. shooting an elephant, isn't it? And how he is made to feel ridiculous that as an imperialist, your fear in empire is constantly that you're going to be laughed at. But actually I would I would quibble
0: with that a tiny bit. I think there's always people who do feel guilty, and that's probably been the case in all empires. Um, people who are their their particular disposition, maybe, their temperamental or intellectual disposition is they will be haunted by shame or by regret or, or whatever. But actually in some ways, I mean I take a different conclusion, which is I think a lot of people weren't traumatized and they they actually loved running empires and conquering people. And actually, in a way, it's a more disturbing story that actually lots of people, I mean, I can remember a great story. I mean, this is a completely different empire. Um, there's a, a story, Martin Davidson, who worked for the BBC running their history programs, um, tells a story about a relative of his. I can't remember it wasn't. They were talking about Hungary. And the, the relative said, oh, Hungary, you know, <laughs> wonderful country, great scenes. You know, the women are very pretty, very handsome cities. And he was like, when were you in Hungary? And, and this guy said, oh, I have best days of my life. You know, I was there in uh, 1942 or something. And you think, geez, this is meant to be a very dark chapter that you're haunted by. And you're remembering it as the, this sort of jolly, you know, the equivalent of a gap here. And I think that's almost more disturbing, isn't it? That a lots of people may have been involved in imperial atrocities or in conquering people or blasting women and children to
2: smithereens or whatever.
0: But actually, maybe they're not traumatized by it.
2: Yeah. Actually, I was reading uh, Alex Renton's book, which is about him facing up to his family's history of slavery. And he tells a story about a Scottish guy who goes off to the Caribbean and he's, on his first day, he sees a Scot- another Scottish colleague of his punch a slave in the face for serving the food wrong. And he's absolutely full of dismay. But then 10 years later, none of it bothers him. And you quote, uh, what's it, Thomas Thistlewood, is it?
3: Mm. The, the The slave owner in Jamaica who... Um, I mean, inflicts unspeakable punishments on, and on records his, it all in a diary. Records it all in his diary: rapes, mm. torture. I mean, so revolting that I, he, yeah, even Apple doesn't costs, want to be talked. About doesn't it doesn't stretch to that extreme. Um, and I, and and actually, he—the he, reason that I came across him is that he's the first person to, uh, known person to, to have played a cricket match in the West Indies. So, oh wow! <laughs> the I idea think- that he's he's using slaves to carve out a, a, a cricket pitch. Um, yeah, no, he saw himself as
2: a, he saw himself as a civil as a Absolute, yes. man of the Enlightenment, didn't he? Yes, he was reading yes. all these books. Didn't realize he was playing cricket. Or cricket
0: has been tainted from the beginning. I think that's the lesson of this. I
3: Maybe save that discussion for a later. <laughs> for a later. But I guess, I mean, I guess that again, though the the, the 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 great story of that uh, is um, Conrad's um, Heart of Darkness. Which then gets translated into Apocalypse Now. The idea that that the colonizer can enter a heart of darkness where all moral norms get dissolved. Um, and that's a kind of very I mean that that, that's a that's a a nightmare that is clearly bred of direct experience of the functioning of empire.
2: Mm. And it challenges the, I guess, the narrative we have with abolition that we, we got involved in something terrible and we gradually saw the light. It's not always the way it went. Well, I think
3: um, that's a perfect point on which to have a break, and maybe we could we could pursue that theme a bit further on um, how abolition worked. No, I'm going to do that because actually I don't want to do that because I, <laughs> I want to save slavery for another episode. Um, yeah,
0: Dominic's kicking. I, I've lost. My okay, <laughs> um, Tom, has been attempt- <laughs> Tom has been attempting to take us into the break, but he's completely failed. So we're going to have a break, and we should be back after the ads. See you in a minute. Goodbye. <laughs>
1: Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply.
0: This episode is
3: brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the Launch Your Online Shop
2: stage, all
3: the way to the
0: Welcome back to The Rest is History. Tom Holland was going to bring us back in, but he's he's given up the ghost. Uh, he's been drinking too much, he tells us, uh, while you <laughs> we were off air. So um, Tom has always done these podcasts drunk, um, but I didn't think it would be a problem, and now it is. <laughs> anyway, let's continue. Tom, I believe if you can get your words out, you have a question for Sanam. Thank you very much, Dominic. Um, I do. Uh,
3: and this is from Hazim Amin, and he asks, the British Empire shaped the modern world in the same way that the Arab empires or Chinese empires shaped their respective worlds. Wouldn't it be too simplistic to label this phenomenon wholly good or bad? I think, I mean, I think we touched on that. Um, But this is the interesting question. Aren't these labels themselves influenced by the empire? So in a sense, isn't our understanding of what is good and bad in the context of imperialism itself a legacy of imperialism?
2: Yes, and I guess you guys touched upon this in your podcast about empires in general, which I learned a lot from. And it's definitely useful to remember the British Empire wasn't the only empire empire that ever happened, right? And there was a survey done recently by Ipso Mori, which found that, you know, we surveyed people across Europe and found that actually people in the Netherlands were even more nostalgic than us. We were the second most nostalgic, but the Dutch, very nostalgic. And actually, the Germans and the French too. And actually, I think you won't meet many Sikhs who say that Sikh empire was anything other than brilliant and cosmopolitan and peaceful. (laughs) I was going to ask you that. Is that, that I mean, is that the... So what, yeah. what is the Sikh take on their empire, that it was brilliant? It was great. It was, it was absolutely lovely, <laughs> inclusive. We celebrated Christmas even for the British. And uh, I've never heard a negative word said about the Sikh empire. And it's important for me to remember that there's something in human nature that wants us to believe the best about it. What, what, what do Muslims and Hindus say about the Sikh empire? Actually, I've, I've never read it. All I've read is Sikh accounts of the Sikh empire. I'd love to read a Muslim or that's Hindu a kind of interesting
0: account question. of it. Yeah. Um, there's another question that I think is fascinating, and it, and it comes at the end of your book. Well, it comes throughout your book, and it's uh, John Andrews sort of picks up on it, and he says, given how awful things appear here and elsewhere, I would be interested to know if Satnam remains as optimistic as he seems in the book that wider education about the facts of empire is enough to move this debate forward. Now I think this is a fascinating issue in your book because you basically call for a lot of education about empire and, and, and the, the sort of subtext or the assumption is the more people know about history, the nicer they will be. Mm. Now I would, I think we've done, we've touched on this a few times and I have what some people regard as an utterly deranged and heretical position, which is often the more people know about history and the more they think of it. About it, the more likely they are to launch a preemptive strike on their neighbors. Um, so, um, so what do you, do you honest, do you genuinely think that learning that a, there is a a history that can unify, you know, 70 million people or whatever? And B, that there is
2: a way to teach it that will genuinely bring people more to more together. I do. I mean, it has been quite hard to retain my optimism in the last six months, given it's become a culture war. I mean, the arguments about empire between the government and Black Lives Matter supporters are toxic. And it's been weaponized by the Tories in a kind of focus group way. So they've obviously done some research. They found out that being proud of imperial history works well in the Midlands and with the people who voted for them in the last general election. The reason I'm still optimistic is that young people... No lot more than I did, and they're really keen. They're getting their information and education from the internet, from Instagram, from films like Black Panther, and I feel like the business world have have also actually embraced Black Lives Matter and history to a degree. So even though there's massive backlash, I think in the end, young people will win. But, but Black Panther's a total fantasy, isn't it? It is, yeah. But there's a scene in um, the British Museum. Do you remember that bit? I haven't seen it, I'm afraid. I haven't seen it. it. I've
3: never seen a superhero film because I boycott it because of Spider Man.
2: Oh, you should watch it. I think it's the ninth biggest
0: film of all time. I find them so boring. I always fall asleep. Just, I mean, I know this is basically the words of an old man, um, <laughs> but, but I actually I never thought I would say this, but there is too much action.
2: And yeah. Plot. No, Black Panther's definitely worth watching. And it, it left me feeling quite optimistic. And I, I just know from my nieces in my life in there who are in their 20s. They just, they really care and they really get a lot of their stuff. The classroom doesn't really matter that much, I think. But what is it that they're going to study? Bearing in mind
3: that we've got 500 years of history and it spans the world and it's all incredibly complicated and we can't basically
0: agree on anything. A lot of Um, kids do 40 minutes of history a week.
3: Yeah, Um, the
2: the only statutory thing on the education in the history curriculum is the Holocaust. I think there's a bit of teaching of empire in key stage three, but it varies massively. But, you know, interesting, the Stephen Lawrence Inquiry and the Windrush Inquiry both made the same conclusion that we need to teach British Empire better. And I think we go around in circles. We have a racial crisis and we're like, oh, my God, we should reflect on the reason why we are a multicultural society and teach history better. And I, I believe you do. And I think parts of Britain are already doing that. The Welsh national curriculum has changed already. And hopefully England will catch up.
0: I mean, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because I always used to think that they'd actually... Again, another demented view of mine. I used to think that, um, the American, Americans were very, I mean, there's an immigrant society. I always used to marvel at the way in which they'd integrated, you know, Italian Americans, Jewish Americans, so on and so forth into their national story. But of course, what's very obvious now, um, is that nas- that national story has always had holes. Some would say a colossal gaping, single gaping hole and that their debate about history is even more Im- I mean, uh, Embittered to the sort of nth degree, um, compared with ours. And I don't know whether there's a European model. I don't know whether, I don't know enough about the French education system or the Dutch or whatever, about whether anybody has ever actually cracked this of creating a model of an education system that basically most people are are broadly happy with and a sort of national, a single, I mean, maybe that's the thing that you can't have a single narrative that pleases everybody by definition.
2: mm. But the Germans have with World War II, but not necessarily with their own very problematic colonialism, you know. But I think I think German history was, the Nazis was, was, was so monstrous. And
3: we've talked about this several times already on the podcast that Hitler has come to, to serve the West basically as the embodiment of evil. So they can structure their entire education system around it. But I, I, I mean, I think that, because um, you raised this kind of interesting question, is Shakespeare the, you know, the, Brit- the British think Shakespeare is the greatest writer. Clearly they think that partly because he's English and we speak English. So we're more sensitive to it. But also because clearly the fact that English is the global language and we exported this idea and therefore Shakespeare has a global um, resonance, it makes it an easier conceit for us to uphold. But I guess that um, kind of holding on to things like that is something that makes lots of people in Britain quite happy, not least those who are responsible for the tourist industry. Um, yeah. There is a sense in which, um, is it not human nature to big up your own civilization, your own country, your own um, heritage? And perhaps one of the things that's actually striking about Britain, which again, all were pointed out, is that, that Britain perhaps is exceptional not for its jingoism, but for the sense of embarrassment that lots of people feel about its history.
2: Yeah, I think that that's all the embarrassment has definitely been a prominent tradition. but. I feel like the exceptionalism has accelerated in recent years. I mean, you've seen it with the coronavirus, you know, epidemic, this obsession with world being world beating. I actually listed the number of time politicians had said something was world beating in the last year. And it was something like 56 times, you know, the vaccines, our test and trace system, which wasn't world beating. Um, our science, we have the best science in the world. I think. Every country bigs themselves up, but we take it to an extreme degree. And actually, our particular politicians, Boris Johnson, at the moment, does it all the time. You know, he was doing it before he became a politician, really. You know, this obsession with being number one. I don't think it serves any useful purpose because, you know, as we've learned from Dominic Cummings, the government is not behaving in a particularly world-beating way at the moment.
0: But as Tom suggests, isn't that just... I mean, all kind of, So, for example, you mentioned the coronavirus, Sweden, which had a sort of short-lived empire in the North, in the Baltic, and which it's, it's empire was destroyed at what Poltava in the early 18th century, and then became this sort of social democratic poster chart. Sweden also has a strong sense of exceptionalism, also has a belief that it led the world. Um, and, you know, has had a, at the very least, should we say, a controversial, um, experience during the pandemic. So I don't know that that's necessarily uniquely British, is it?
2: I don't think it's uniquely British, but I think we do it more than anyone else. The Indians do it as well at the moment, and actually, these culture wars we're talking about are occurring. with you know Donald Trump's attempt to have a patriotic education. Modi is doing a load of stuff at the moment with Indian historians and trying to push a certain Hindu far right view of history. It's happening, and it's happening in Hungary and in Poland. Poland, yeah. yeah. So it's not. We're not unique, but I guess. I guess. I, on on
3: what basis would we say say what Modi is doing in India is wrong?
2: I mean, why shouldn't he push a Hindu nationalist? This is agenda? I've noticed this kind of uh, um, postmodern tendency in your podcast to just uh, <laughs> say you know,
3: not, but you know but everything's but I mean, a myth,
2: nothing matters. Well, it's but but it's just that. In a way, what, I can't believe it seems we've had somebody to me-
0: on Tom who's now <laughs> analysing our podcast and uh, attacking us for post yeah. How well, that's is that? Very <laughs> Yes, but but, but You're right, could, because are Because in a right.
3: sense, it seems to me that that, that actually Modi is, f- whether consciously or not, far more dramatically repudiating the legacy of British imperialism than say Nehru did, um, or the you know or the or the. the, the the generations of the Indian elites that followed independence, which basically took for granted an essentially kind of British paradigm of there being the secular and that this being distinct from things called religions. Mm. Uh, and, and that, that, that Modi, in a sense, is really trying to erase that. Uh, you know, he, he, his sense of what, um, Hindutva might have been may well be kind of erroneous and mythical, but it is a reaction against a view of the world that basically was spread by British and European and American imperialism more generally. And it yeah, does seem I mean, to me that as that, that kind of, um, as Western power retreats, so in countries like India in China, in the Middle East, in the Muslim countries, um, a lot of things that were exported culturally and ideologically by European empires are, are going to come under question.
2: Yeah, I mean, Modi's relationship to the British Empire is very interesting because his political tradition doesn't have a particularly good story to tell. You know, they weren't part of the the fight against the British Empire in particular. So, I mean, Will Drammple finds himself attacked quite often for his writing about the East India Company in India. Um, but yeah, it's happening all around the world. I haven't answered your question, have I?
0: No, no. That's um. I think not answering the questions is is I, I. Well, I like the fact that it's an open conversation. Actually, because I mean, I think isn't this part of the trouble with when people have these arguments about the British Empire, about empires generally, that they expect that you can come to a definitive, simple, and often morally charged answer. And I mean, one of the great things about your book, it seems to me, is that you actually are so open. Um, and I wonder whether that's partly because you've come to it. In a way, you, you, you have come to it as both a Sikh and, and a Briton, but also it's quite, I'm quite interested in that you seem to have come to it with so little baggage, if that makes sense. I think because the key
2: you, thing is I've come to it as a non-historian. No yeah, offense that's to what I, you guys, yeah. but I don't really read history books. I've read Dominion and uh, oh, God, maybe two don't. other books. Actually, <laughs> I don't read, read, read history for books. fun. Books.
0: You, you
3: only read three <laughs> books <laughs> in your <laughs> life. <You've> read <laughs> you read three books, and one of them Dominic. had to be Tom's. <laughs> have you read
0: Dominic's books?
2: I haven't. No, no. I've seen these TV Good. programs. You've seen the TV
0: programs. Thank you. i okay, TV I'll take programs. that. I'll take that. I mean, um, Jesus.
2: But I mean, actually, that's a very important point, because I guess everyone listening to the podcast is probably someone who reads history books. Lots of people don't. I read novels. I write, probably write novels. I want character, sexual intrigue, plot.
0: There's a lot of that in this podcast, a lot of sexual intrigue.
2: <laughs> sexual tension, that's something else. Um, <laughs> um, and history doesn't give you that. And also history books assume you know a lot. I mean, I really struggled reading books on British Empire because there's basic things I didn't know. Also, they're way too long. Every history book is too long. Oh, God, don't go there.
0: <laughs> don't say
3: this. Why are <laughs> they
2: so long? So you've lot ambition to say. Was, <laughs> well, you've got to, put in a, you've got to put in a chapter about the New Romantics, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> so my ambition was to write... A short book yeah. on British that was really part of my mission, because there's not there's not anything. I think I think you're so right that
3: of course what most most people's sense of history does not come from school, does not come from reading books. It's a kind of inchoate, vague sense. And perhaps that's why the debate over the British Empire is so toxic. Because it's either slavery, racism, people blown out of cannons or it's—I mean—the joke is railways, isn't it? And um, yeah, pith helmets, uh, democracy, and um, whatever. Uh, and essentially, they, they can
2: exist in people's minds completely untethered to any facts whatsoever, really. Yeah. And also, the less you know, I'm saying the opposite of Dominic here. I think the less you know about British imperial history, the stronger your opinions. I actually think it's one of those cases where actually, people—if they—if they did know more, the only possible conclusion is that you've got to be nuanced. Yeah. It's the only possible conclusion, right?
0: I think that is very optimistic because I think often people who know – I mean, it's not always the way that people who know a lot about something tend to have very nuanced views. I mean, we're all familiar with the kind of conspiracy theorist who knows more about the Kennedy assassination than, you know, you could, you could ever learn in a lifetime and then has some incredibly abstruse and elaborate theory about how it was done by aliens or something. <laughs> you know, that kind of – so you're more optimistic than I am. And I, you're also more optimistic because you talk a lot about imperial amnesia or historical amnesia and people. But I, I often think one of the weird things about history is those of us who are interested in history think everybody should be interested in history and should be thinking about it more than they are. But actually a lot of people, I mean, this is kind of, this is kind of real heresy to the listeners of this podcast, but a lot of people just don't
2: give a damn about history, do they? No, I think it's history is something you get into as you get older. And I worry about it because I think the moment you're interested more in the past than the future, you're old. It's over. Oh, yeah. I'm so old. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> that, by that
0: definition, I've been old since I was about four. <laughs> uh,
3: well, I was so into dinosaurs. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I completely,
0: I was, yeah, I've always been more interested in the past, I guess. But then Satnam, if you think that if you think it's bad to be interested so much in the past and not in the future, how come you think
2: that we should? devote so much attention to looking backwards in schools. Well, it's about how much you you don't spend your entire life looking at the past, but to work out your path in the future, you need to know where you're coming from, man. How the hell? I mean, Brexit is a good example. We're trying to redefine our relationships with the world at the moment. And often we don't remember what we did to them during empire. And I think they find that shocking. My, My favorite fact in all my research was in Tony Blair's memoir, when he was handing back Hong Kong to the Chinese, he says, oh, you know what? I was very only dimly aware of the history. It's like you can bet the Chinese bloody know about the history. Yeah. You can bet every Chinese school kid is told about the Opium Wars.
0: Now, you've been disobliging about Tony Blair. You definitely have burned your boats with Tom Holland. <laughs> no, not <laughs> at all. Not
2: at all.
3: Because I would say, I mean, you know, people say that Boris Johnson is the most imperial uh, of, of recent prime ministers. I would say Tony Blair was a, yeah, by a oh, long yeah. way. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the Iraq war was absolutely the exemplification of a kind of deep-rooted British imperial attitude that combines kind of um, the, the the ruthless deployment of hard power with a kind of moralistic sense that that, that we knew better. And, Absolutely, yeah. You know that that was basically the 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 attitude that enabled us to
0: conquer people and feel that it was for their good. But isn't one of this, these things, Tom? Though, uh, well, to both of you, I guess that. Um... There's an assumption that, you know, when 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 the reality, when the substance of imperial power has gone, when the colonies are, are independent and so on, the attitude should change overnight. And I'll often read that in books looking back at the 1950s and 1960s, and they'll say Britain clung on to its ideals. Um, but, but nations don't change, and a national imagination can't change. I mean, that's why, actually, we, when you're talking about race and racism – I mean, I was really struck by that reading the, the book. Cause I thought, you know, I read a lot of books in sort of seventies, eighties, in the seventies, eighties, West Midlands from the local library or something that by today's standards would undoubtedly be considered, well, by any standards would be considered racist. I mean, biggles or something, let's say. Um, and one of these. Enid Blyton. Well, I mean, Enid mm. Blyton is a very good example. The three gollywogs. So. Unless you're going to have this sort of colossal purge immediately, which no country ever really does. I mean, we had Ian Kershaw talking about denazification the other week and that denazification was, in his words, a farce. You know, countries aren't going to shed. It's, it's almost unrealistic to imagine that a country is going to sort of shed its skin instantly. And, and the process of losing your imperial ideals probably is a question of centuries, do you think?
2: Yeah. I mean, that for me was the one of the most, uh, kind of destabilizing points of the book was realising that even though I supposedly had this brilliant education, you know, from a, a grammar school and at Cambridge University, I'd been colonised in the sense that, you know, I was in my final term at Cambridge before I read a single brown author. All my views of even India were through the Western eye, you know. And also learning about how the British, how they ultimately conquered a lot of Indian kingdoms was not on the battlefield. It was by sending the princes through the English edu- public school system. That's how you really won people. You turn them into English gents. And I, I, I know what you're saying. I think the psychological legacies of empire are fascinating. And I didn't really understand them until I read Paul Gilroy, Edward Said, you know. I, I wonder whether actually
3: one of the reasons why we, we can't escape the legacy of British imperialism is because, in fact, imperialism was an expression of something much deeper which was the rise of, of capitalism. And perhaps that's the reason why the Dutch and the English who essentially invent capitalism are the people who seem most kind of self-confident in their imperial legacy. Because I think that um, particularly what happens in the, I suppose, the 19th century, that explosive period of, of, of growth of, is best summed up by Marx in the, in the, in the opening pages of the um, Communist Manifesto. Where he talks about the achievements of the bourgeoisie he talks about how they have utterly transformed the world in the space of you know a century they have um, changed the patterns of, of everybody around the world and basically we still live in that world you know we the British Empire may be gone, but the capitalism that the British developed is still what makes the world go round
0: but that to some extent is Neil Ferguson's argument right I mean, that's empire the, making the modern world. Yeah. I, was th- I thought
3: I was there. I was thinking I was being a Marxist. <laughs> like being Romanic,
2: but it turns no, out I'm actually a neo no conservative. Uh, quite oh my the God. opposite. <laughs> <laughs> well, I find it fascinating that one of the reasons why the city of London is slightly disconnected from the British economy now is because it, it developed for empire to serve this international network and not necessarily to serve Britain, you know. And that is something we still live with now. But when it comes to... You know, the economics of empire, that was the part of the book that most made my brain want to fry because yeah. there's a consensus amongst economics, economists that actually empire didn't enrich Britain overall because it costs so much to run these colonies, to go to war, that overall it didn't enrich us. And when you start facing up to that, I don't know what that does to your theory, Tom, but Well, I think, I think it
3: backs it because I was prompted to think that by reading, by, by
2: reading your account of that, Mm. that that in a
3: sense, you know, what, what, what makes, what makes empires? I mean, it's self-confidence. Um, it's power. Uh, it's, um, a sense of mission, but it's also the ability to persuade people that your way of life and your way of seeing the world is something that you, you know, might be worth signing up to. And the British Empire f- featured all of those, but it featured it basically because it was, it was an expression of, I guess, what we would now define as modernity. And the moment the, the British imperialism comes to seem old-fashioned, which it increasingly does, then basically it's doomed. And that's why the American variant of imperialism is so much more successful. And it's also why the Chinese variant of imperialism now is such a challenge to American imperialism, because it looks modern. It looks sophisticated. It's the kind of stuff that people might conceivably want to sign up to.
2: Now that is a book Nal Ferguson hasn't written and you should do that one. Compare Tom Holland's them. literary career
0: is <laughs> <That expands. laughs> about to take
2: a very unexpected turn.
0: <laughs> I I I think if I'm gonna do that, I, we'd better stop the podcast now. Yeah. i better go off and, uh, will, you be and capable of, will you be capable of taking us out after your failure to take us into the break? I can't. I still I still my brain still okay. feels fuddled by my um over so last night. I, I think it's quite fitting that we really we, we've talked around a lot of issues, but we haven't really resolved them. But that's how it should be, because I think one of the lessons of Satnam Sangira's book Empireland is that actually some of these issues are very difficult, if not impossible to re- resolve. And actually the interesting and fruitful thing. Is to is the argument is to well and to so the have com- lots of podcasts on or that. the conversation, should we say, rather than the argument? I think actually that's one of the problems about the empire and the discussion of it is that it tends to be an argument where it should actually be a conversation. One of the great things about Satnam's book, for those of you who haven't read it, is that there is lots of room to, to disagree with it, to engage with it, but it's 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 written in a very measured and nuanced way that is uh, a pleasure to read. And so it's very Sandham, funny often, and is, is surprising from, in a book. And he's from Wolverhampton, <laughs> which is detailing like, a lot of has cries. not been mentioned enough and is a Wolves fan, like all great people are. Elgar, Sangira, Sandbrook, the Holy Trinity, as we're known in the West <laughs> Midlands. Um, and Tom, uh, do you want to have anything to say on this or nothing? I've got absolutely nothing to add to that. Brilliant. Okay, Sandman, um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
2: Thank you. It's been an honour. And we'll see you all next time. Thank you.